Um, so I, I just, I don't want to, again, I want to keep these things very short because I think the time is so precious for us to cover the Quran. Um, but what's very interesting to me is that a lot of people have recently been writing to the Sheikh um, and saying, and I don't know if they follow Usuli, but, you know, I'm, I'm happy when people, like the word gets around that, you know, Khalid Abul Fadl or, you know, um, Usuli is someone that they should contact. But we've been getting a lot of messages from people saying, you know, I, I feel like I'm at a crisis. I feel like, um, oh my goodness, sorry, can I just put this back on? Cause, <laughs> yeah. Sorry guys, I, I, know was, I knew I was forgetting something. <laughs> I, I left the sheikh behind. Okay, the train left the station again without the sheikh. Um, so what I, I wanted to say was what's very interesting is that we've recently been getting a lot of messages from people um, either, you know, um, directed to um, mostly the sheikh, but sometimes to me too, um, saying that, you know, I feel like I have really lost connection with my faith and I, I want to start over. And it's really interesting. Again, it's very timely because I've been inviting people to um, you know, heritage Muslims to consider starting the journey again as a convert. Um, and so I'm, I'm sort of happy that people are reaching out at that point. But the question that keeps coming is, I want this path and where do I start? You know, um, and I feel like it is really overwhelming because I think when you reach that point in your life where you feel like I, I want more, I want meaning, I want to start this journey, I want to connect with God again, but I don't know where to start. It's overwhelming. Um, you know, and I think, well, gosh, we have like so much content and, you know, so many places, um, so many things that um, people can draw upon. But just to um, give my own perspective, and I'm sure that the way that the Sheikh would answer the question is different from the way I would answer it, um, is to just start by telling God um, that this is what you want. And I think that the thing that people oftentimes um, feel is kind of unnatural is talking to God like a friend and being, um, you know, reaching out and wanting to build a relationship at a very personal, sometimes very casual level, but a very intimate level. And I think it really just starts with something very simple. Sorry, I got it. Um, Sometimes I think it just starts very simply with telling God what you want and opening that door of communication and asking God to be your friend. And I know sometimes it's a strange feeling. Um, and we know intellectually that God knows everything. God knows what's in our hearts, what's in our minds. But to actually um, you know, act on that is something very different. And to feel comfortable with that is also something very different, especially if you've grown up with the idea that Islam is something that is, um, that should induce fear, or that if you do something wrong, that, you know, you are, are looking at the threat of hell. Um, you know, so, so what we're talking about is a very different um, way of thinking about God and thinking about how do I become best friends with God? Or, um, you know, if you think about how much your mother loves you, um, or your father loves you, or someone close to you loves you. Um, you know, when you think of like someone who you feel intimately close to that you feel very comfortable with, um, I, that's the kind of feeling um, that is important to engender. And I think it starts with just a conversation and just telling God, you know, from heart to heart, this is really what I want. 
um, please guide me, show me what to do, um, listen to me, you know, um, and sometimes, like, I know on my journey as a convert, when I started talking to God, um, I didn't hear anything back for, like, a month or two. Every night, I would, like, be talking to God, and it would feel like I was just talking to the wall, and, you know, and I think that that was an important part of the process because it was kind of like, um, you know, how much do you really want this and how much do you really believe um, and how patient are you willing to be? And when I finally felt something, it was the start of an incredible journey. So um, just to start by conversation, thinking about God in every chance you can, making God part of your everyday life. Um, and then from there also to understand that this path, especially the path that we try to present, is one that really relies on knowledge. And knowledge requires an investment of time, and it requires hard work. And it's like anything in life that you want, you have to be willing to invest the time. You have to be willing to be patient. You have to be willing to do the hard work. Um, and I think most people think of Islam or religion in general as a hobby or something you do on the side, something that you know you um, that should fit into your life. Like basically, it doesn't it doesn't fit front and center, but it's something that you work in when you feel like you have a moment to spare, and that is also a complete um, change of perspective that we try to um, advocate here. So, you know, when, when you care about your job, when you care about your relationships with other people, when you care about, you know, learning an instrument or learning a language, people know you have to invest a lot of time and you have to start from the beginning and you have to work your way up. It's like any other learning process, but it's the most important learning process um, and, it's, and it's worth the effort. So just to prepare yourself mentally that when you seek this path, that, you know, it, it is going to take an investment. So um, to start also with reading um, and you know knowledge, the two books that I would recommend um, would be The Search for Beauty, A Conference of the Books. Um, and that book is very um, easy. Um, Joe is holding up the book. It's a wonderful book because it's stories. It's true stories. And you know it's fun to read stories. It's interesting to read stories. But the stories also draw upon um, our Islamic tradition and jurists and you know um, wisdom from the past that oftentimes we have not heard before in our Islamic centers or from people that we think of as learned Muslims. Um, and each chapter is really short and it's really easy just to open it up and pick any chapter because they don't have to be read in order. But they the chapters each address real modern life problems that we face as Muslims in the West. I mean, it was written for Muslims in America because these were stories of, you know, things that happened to people in America. Um, but I think it's fair to say any Muslim in the West um, confronting, you know, issues with faith, with relationships with their parents, their spouse, their children, with ideas that they're hearing at the mosque, um, ideas about women, ideas about, you know, how to know what is authentic to the faith and not. All of these things are addressed in a very beautiful, engaging way, and um, and it's an easy um, it's an easy way to introduce yourself to a different kind of Islam, and it's one that's based on beauty, um, based on reason, thinking, using your brain, and always looking for the most beautiful way to solve any problem, and um, and I think that 
that is a timeless book that can transform people. And as I've said before, we've gotten lots of messages from people that said this is the one book that brought them back to Islam. Like they really, if they had not found it, they would have left the faith um, and that they were so happy to find a book that spoke to their heart and their intellect in a way that they sort of believe this is what Islam was, but just was, wasn't finding it anywhere. So that's, that's the first book I would recommend. And then the second book to start this journey is The Great Theft, Wrestling Islam from the Extremists. And this was a book that was written back in 2005 after 9-11 when everybody was kicking around this term moderate Muslim, but no one actually took the time to define what it meant to be a moderate Muslim. And so this book, um, basically in two parts, the first part gives you the history of the rise of Islam, of, of Wahhabism, and that whole conservative, conservative strain of Islam. So it explains to you why Muslims ended up where they are. And it's an important read because even, you know, rabbis and pastors um, have written to the professor saying, thank you for writing this book. Now I understand the, the story of Islam has so much more to do with just conservatism and extremism among human beings, and that it's not something that is specific to Islam as some foreign, strange faith. Um, it's a story of, of the rise of extremism and what happens with Puritan ideas. So the first part of the book is very interesting to understand the history. The second part of the book actually goes through theology and practice and says, here's the difference between a moderate Muslim and an extremist Muslim on a lot of different points of theology and, and you know how people live as Muslims. And it's very interesting because he argues people are either somewhere on the continuum between extremism and moderation, and they could be in different places on that continu continuum on different um, topics and different issues of theology. So it's a really instructive book to help undo a lot of the baggage that you know we, I've talked about here um, that comes with being you know, an ethnic Muslim or a cultural Muslim. Um, and it helps to start clear the way for um, how to navigate what is authentic versus not. Somebody calls me, I need to listen to Do we know how to mute that? It's okay. If you guys could please um, mute your microphones. So, uh, yeah, no worries. Um, so that's really all I wanted to say, um, again, just to, to start this journey is um, to be patient with yourself and to invite God in at every turn. Um, try to think of God in a loving, beautiful um, you know, way, like a friend um, or a confidant um, or support. Um, and to be ready to invest time and energy um, and, and do the hard work. Um, because the, the payoff is tremendous. So that is it. We're going to take a break now and um, pray Maghrib, and then we'll be back to start the halakha, inshallah. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Salatu wassalam. Ala Muhammad wa ala alihi wa ashabihi. Wa man itabaw bihsanin illa yawm al-deen. So, inshallah, 
we will delve into Surah Al-Musammal um, and its lessons Surah Al-Muzammil was uh, among the, the earliest revelations of the Qur'an. Um, it was likely revealed after Al-Muddathir, although there are some sources that say that Al-Muzammil was revealed before Al-Muddathir. Um, in my humble opinion, that's not likely. But Allahu alam, only Allah knows best. And of course, it was revealed before Al-Fatiha. Um, but shortly before Al-Fatiha, because uh, the evidence is that it was Al-Muddathir and then Al-Muzammil, and then the Fatiha was revealed right after. So it could have been the revelation right before the Fatiha, or I think that's the most likely uh, scenario. And what also is interesting about Muzammil is, like all the Sur, or no, take that back, uh, like most of the Sur revealed after the Fatiha, it shows a four-part or five-part breakup. Um, so there are four main segments to Al-Muzammil that inshallah we'll, we'll, uh, we'll discuss. And it's a fairly short surah, um, but it is clear that it was also a surah that is intended to be a main building block um, for the core Muslims who will carry the weight of the Islamic message. Uh, with some interesting things to note in, in, uh, on this precise point, as we all see. There is there are reports that say that um, although Surah Al-Muzammil was revealed as a unit um, at the time, so in, in, as I said likely before in Muddathir, there are reports that say that the very last part of the Surah, the, the last uh, Ayah, the last ayah of the surah was revealed. Some reports said a year afterwards. Some said 18 months afterwards. Some even said that it was revealed in Medina. Um, in my opinion, none of these reports are very likely. I, I think Al-Muzammil was revealed in total at the time it was revealed. And that there isn't um, the the evidence that um, the last ayah was revealed a year later or eighteen months later or even in Medina, as we'll see, is not convincing. It's not very convincing. Okay, so Ya'yu al-Muzammil is usually 
translated as Allah speaking to the Prophet and saying, all you is wrapped in garments. And uh, we said in talking about Surah Al-Muddathir that it is not at all surprising in in Arabic style or the the style of Arabic language that you refer to someone by the function they're engaged in. So if someone is reading a book, I could say, Ya ayyuhal qari'. Oh, that who reads. Or, oh, that who is engaged in reading. Uh, or if someone is in, uh, is a soldier uh, in warfare, I could say, Ya ayyuhal muharib. Oh, you who is in war. And that was considered nida uh, al-hamimiyya, um, or a form of referring to someone that is informal and and uh, implies a, a level of intimacy between the caller and the called upon. But as I alluded to when we talked about Surah Al-Muddathir, Al-Muzammil, while, while Al-Muddathir might more clearly refers to someone who is covered over, Al-Muzammil could have meanings other than that who is wearing a garment, or that who is wrapped up in a garment. Um, and in fact, in Muzammil literally, or Al-Zamil, or Zamila, or uh, is someone who is burdened by something carrying something. Um, because of the way a person, you wouldn't say a muzammil about someone who's wearing a light garment, but you would say a muzammil about someone who's wearing a heavy garment. So in other words, it's as if they are carrying the garment. But you could also say, refer to someone as a muzammil who is not wrapped in, in, in a garment at all. And so, it, it, why is this important? Because, as many commentators noted, that it is quite possible that Allah is speaking to the Prophet والسلام, and in a intimate way, in a, in a sort of a friendly way, telling him, all you who is burdened by this affair. Some said, uh, all you who is burdened by the Quran, or you, all you who is going to carry the Quran, but I don't think that's very likely. I think the most likely is that all you who are burdened by this spiritual quest that was clearly burdening the Prophet at the time. Right after Al-Muddathir, uh, 
shortly after, we have reports that the Prophet ﷺ would spend uh, long hours into the night in supplication uh, and in a in a state of dhikr. We 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 don't know precisely what he said in this dhikr that was not preserved for us. But we also know there are plenty of reports that it, he wasn't alone, but that the very first converts to Islam, like Ali bin Abi Talib, although Ali bin Abi Talib was a very young man, was a teenager at the time, but that he accompanied him in um, uh, these visuals of zikr. And What all the reports agree on is that this dick would last for hours, and that um, if the night is from Maghrib till Fajr, from or it, most say that the, the the heart of the night is from Isha till Fajr, uh, that they would spend two thirds of the night sometimes a little more, sometimes a little less, in dhikr. Um, so you're talking about substantial hours, and there are many reports that said that the Prophet and the early converts, the, 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 the group that converted within the first year of Islam, or the first even six months of Islam, uh, they would spend so much time in dhikr that their feet and or their legs would swell. So, it is clear that to say that he is burdened with a cause is a very reasonable conclusion. And the reference to, uh, to Ya'ayu al-Muzammim would then not be necessarily limited to these reports that say that he would be wearing a garment, which for many different reasons, some of which I mentioned in Mudathir, I, I doubt um, that it refers to garments at all. A part of it is that they conflict with reports about um, what garments we know that the Prophet actually owned. Um, which is very modest. Anyway, so what's fascinating about Surah Al-Muzammil is that right away it comes and affirms in a command form and an ongoing practice. Ya Al-Muzammil layl so the command is supplicate throughout the night and later on becomes a reference to 
what is known as tahajjud. Tahajjud basically is when you spend the night in a zik, in a in a in a state of zikr, um, praying and doing du'a and doing tasbih. That's tahajjud. Uh, but this is uh, before the final form of salah is revealed, and the tahajjud of the Prophet and his followers at this point, what little we know about it, seem to have consisted basically of reciting what little that was revealed of the Quran, plus a consistent supplication utilizing Allah's name, a repeated repetition of Allah's name and we have reports that it also included the Prophet leading the companions in a free-flowing conversation with Allah um, God of the heavens and the earth God the maker of everything God, I know my people are not guided to the truth. I know my people are astray. Guide me to the beauty of your truth. Guide me to the beauty of your face. Guide me to the light of your lights, and, and so on. And a lot of the, the, the free-flowing was of that form, and apparently the, they would do it in, in an intuitive sense of standing up, for part of the night, and then they would do sujood for prolonged periods of the night, and then they would sit and rest for a while and then stand up again and then go into a state of sujood. And so, note that at this early point, the Quran comes charging them with in a command form so in fact affirming that practice and in the opinion of some scholars although I disagree with that opinion that because of Surah Al-Muzammil Qiyam Al-Layl staying up praying um, at least half of the night a minimum of half of the night was made a fard, was made obligatory upon the Prophet and early Muslims. And that later on it was abrogated. I, I disagree with this opinion. I think that the command form did not make Qiyam al-Layl a fard and then it was later abrogated as some have said um, was the case. But rather, it was an affirmation from the very beginning that if you are going to become a witness, and we'll talk about, because the idea of witnessing becomes, especially later on, very important in the Quran. If you are going, you and your followers are going to become a witness unto people, if in fact you are going to put yourself in that position of witnessing on behalf of God 
then this path cannot be attained without a very serious investment in your relationship with Allah. There are scholars um, you find in the Islamic literature who people commenting on Surah Al-Muzammil who tell you that um, at a minimum what Surah Al-Muzammil teaches is that the day should be divided into three thirds. One third for work. Um, did I write it down? Oh, yeah. Uh, one third for work, one third for rest, and one third for worship. So one third for work, one third for rest or sleep, and one third for worship. Now, of course, note that this is what a lot of scholars say is the soft version of what Surah Al-Muzammil wants because Surah Al-Muzammil initially tells the Prophet uh, spend half of the night in, in worship. Um, I wonder if... Um, I've often wondered, I mean, for, for all the Islamic movements that have sprouted out, all the people who uh, position themselves as authorities on Islam and so on, how many of them actually followed that uh, or even attempted to follow that? One-third for work, one-third for worship, one-third for, for rest. It's very demanding if you actually translate that into a philosophy of life. Um, it will affect economics, it will affect culture, it will affect society, it will affect everything. It will affect family relations, it will affect everything. You can't spend one-third of the day in worship and not have even the way that your brain is wired change. Um, if you read enough of the stories of scholars and salikin for tariq, salikin for tariq meaning students on the way, clearly they, that three-part division was something that in, in the pre-modern age they, they saw as, as an obligatory division. So in other words, they all tried to in fact fulfill that. And so you find in the writings, uh, especially the writings that describe the state of students in Madaris in schools, um, from you know schools all over, from whether in Egypt or in Timbuktu or, or Damascus or Morocco or uh, Bakhuristan or Naishapur or whatever, um, that a lot of the schools in the regulations had that three-part division, which is very interesting, that you study for one-third of the day, you can rest for one-third of the day, and then you have to worship for one-third of the day. And it was part of the school regulations. Now, of course, modernity 
obliterated that and it became a completely forgotten part of our tradition. I don't think the last time I, I um, re remember someone taking the idea seriously of one-third of the day being spent in worship. But anyway, for, for the folks who dream of decolonialism, something to think about, for whatever it's worth, something to think about. I mean, I, I, I can't, um, I've had enough disappointments in life to say that if you push people to spend an hour a day doing anything related to religion, they, they, they consider it a burden. So I've long abandoned the idea of telling people one-third of the day for worship. I don't even talk about it anymore, but so maybe someone who's more gutsy than I am is going to take that torch and carry it. I don't know. I've, I've become too jaded for it. Um, but, you know, there, there, if you read enough in our tradition, um, you're struck by it, and you're struck by how seriously people took the, that idea. Okay, so let's go back again. So, قُمِ اللَّيْلِ إِلَّا قَلِيلًا قُمْ Rise in the night um, and iqama here is, is by implication known to refer to what the Prophet already qiyam al-layl that the Prophet already had engaged in. And so it says initially the night except except a, a, a little um i'm just looking at the stand all night except a little yeah so that's option a if you will then it says half of it or a little less than that option b or a little more, or a little more. So either all of the night except a little, or half of the night except a little, or more of the night, which is the practice that the, the Prophet already followed with his followers, which is quite demanding. Now, if you pause for a second, compare this practice, we know that the earliest Sahaba, the Sahaba who are the rather the famous ones, Imam Ali radiallahu an, or Abu Bakr, or Omar, or Uthman, or we know that it remained a part of the habits of their life even after migrating to Medina and long after migrating to Medina to spend good chunks of the night in dhikr. So much so that, and this was still in my day when I went to Mecca 
I, the, the, uh, each one of them, each one of the Sahaba had their own little um, uh, musalla, their own little, it literally was at the size of a room, and like it's a private prayer area close to their home. And these musallas still existed uh, when I visited in the 80s. I heard that they were torn down later uh, because it, when I visited back in, in the 90s, um, I was told that they weren't there anymore. Unfortunately, as, as you know, the Saudi authorities don't feel any qualms about tearing down historical sites. But they're remarkable that these, that they, we know that they went to the mosque five times a day, but in addition to that, they had built, each one of them has built like a small little room, completely barren of anything, that they would do their visuals, especially in Ramadan, but we don't have reports about later converts to Islam, especially those who entered Islam after Mecca was conquered, spending a similar amount of time in dhikr. The reason I note this is that, in my opinion, every movement that history has ever known, it's built upon a nucleus of truly um, faithful people. In no movement has a hundred percent conviction. All movements are as strong as the movement's nucleus, not the outer rings of the movement. And I've always thought that Surat al-Muzammil was building the Muslim nucleus from which everything will emanate. Was it necessary that the first converts to Islam spend so much time in prayer? My answer is, I absolutely believe so. And it is upon their piety that so much unfolded in Islam and for decades to come, if not centuries to come, It is not reasonable to think that all society would be able to achieve the standard. But it is imperative that a certain small percentage in any society would achieve the standard. And if it doesn't, then you have a very serious problem. Um, one of the things that Um, I, I mean, in my limited experience with Islamic movements in the modern age, um, I've always been, I, I mean, of course, Islamic movements in the U.S., uh, you know, I, I'm not even counting these because that's not even, they're not even in the, in the, in, in the playing field, in the play field. Um, But I was always struck that of all the Islamic movements I sort of 
went in and out of, sort of just checked out, if you will. I, I've never found a movement that understood that you have to spend much more time worshipping than being engaged in politics or even social activity. And I've always thought that that's disappointing. One of the things that has convinced me that Islamic movements in the United States are a lost cause um, is I've never been involved with any Islamic movement in the United States that comes even close to the standard that is demanded by Surat al-Muzabbin. I've been told by my fellow Muslims so many times that it is unrealistic and absurd of me to expect the standard that Surat al-Muzammil demands that I have stopped bringing it up a long time ago. In fact, the last time I've mentioned Surat al-Muzammil in a lecture or a talk was in the 80s. Um, and that's just because of the amount of negative blowback that... Um, but I have to tell you, I have to admit to you that privately, part of my... Um, part of my pessimism about so many Islamic movements is Surat al-Muzammil. I don't think that it is a coincidence or an accident or uh, unintentional that when Allah right when we have the second or third revelation even if it's the fourth revelation that immediately the command is for these very early Muslims Qum al-Layf and illa qalila, worship all the night except for a little. I mean, these are people that would not sleep till noon. I mean, in these societies, if even if you've spent some time like in the villages in Egypt, in a reef, you know that no one in a reef sleeps till noon because once the sun rises, the noise, the, the, the donkeys, the horses, the camel, the, you know, they're all in the street, the smell, the, uh, the, the flies, the, the everything. You know, you can't, there's no, there's no air conditioning, there's no um, fans, you, know, you can't sleep once the sun is up. Uh, there are no curtains, you know, the way we have today, you know. So, just reflect upon that standard. Um, And that standard has always made me feel guilty in my life. Has always tormented my conscience. Um, you know, every time I've, I've been tempted to do binge watching of some show on Netflix, <laughs> and Muzammil torments my conscience. Um, every time I've felt like just being depressed for the rest of the night and just uh, putting my as I always do when I'm not feeling well, 
putting my head in my hand and just holding my head um, and just sitting like a statue in Muzammat torments my conscience. Um, I always feel like Allah is saying, Qum, you know, get off your butt. Um, and not get off their butt, you know, go talk to someone, go whine to someone, go complain to someone, go play video games. Go spend time with God. And substantial time with God. The night, except a little, half the night, except a little, or a little bit more. Okay, this we, it is worth another pause. Um, Rattel is when it comes from Ritless Sinan, the, the way that teeth are organized in your mouth, one after the other, that's where the word Ritl or Rattel comes from. Um, so, Rattil al-Qur'ana Tartila. Note that Tartil is repeated twice. So, it is not that you just, and the reason for that is not just that you are commanded to recite the Qur'an in order, slowly, in order of the surah obviously, but also slowly, but tartila connotes reflection and contemplation. Um, so, Ibn Mas'ud commenting on Surah Al-Muzammil says that it is a grave error to recite a surah while becoming preoccupied by reaching its end. So in other words, you, 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 you can't be just rushing through the surah. Um, I want to see if in my notes I can find one thing. Yeah, so the part that I was looking for is this is a typical quote from commenting on what the Quran at the I'll just read it in Arabic very quickly and then I'll explain. Um, so he's talking about what what the Quran at the means. So it says, "فعند الوصول إلى ذكر الله يستشعر عظمته وجلالته وعند الوصول إلى الوعد والعيد يحصل الرجاء والخوف." وحينئذ يستنير القلب نور معرفة الله والإصراف القراءة يدل على عدم الوقوف على المعاني لأن النفس تبتهج بذكر الأمور الإلهية الروحانية ومن ابتهج بشيء أحب ذكره ومن أحب شيء لم يمر عليه بسرعة فظهر أن المقصود من الترتيل إنما هو حضور القلب وكما المعرفة So what he's saying is that that Speeding through the Quran is a sign of 
a lack of understanding of the Quran and a lack of love for the Quran. Because you cannot come to know something unless you give it its time and you pause and you invest the effort and time in it. And if you love something, you dwell in it slowly. You walk through it slowly. Now, the, um, the habit that you see quite frequently in, in modern Islam, uh, especially if you've gone to school in a, in a, a Muslim country, um, uh, religion classes, often we teach our kids to recite the Quran uh, like a like a speeding bullet, you know, it's very very fast, and the emphasis is on the qu the quantity of memorization, or the quantity of or recitation. So even in Ramadan, you'll find people speeding through the Quran just to finish the Quran in Ramadan, although al Quran tatila literally means go slowly and deliberately, reflectively through the Qur'an. From the very beginning, in the same way that the Prophet and the, the companions are told to invest in dhikr, the investment in the Qur'an is a deliberate and reflective and slow investment not a matter of covering ground and simply speeding through something. Now, of course, you, you, you might notice that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling the Prophet and the companions to re recite the Quran slowly and deliberately and reflectively and not much of the Quran had been revealed at that point um, and we, we there are some interesting reports of pre, of the meccans commenting on on this and says on saying well, quran so what is the quran because they had knew knew very little of it um, so it is noting something about what is going to come in the future This is one of these Quranic expressions that if you develop a relationship with the Quran, this ayah resonates in, in your in your soul. Um Allah is telling the Prophet we are the revelation is going to be weighty. Now of course in the in the literalist uh, commentators they'll tell you um, that what this is talking about is that when the, the they'll often cite um, Aisha's hadith that it would be very cold 
and when the prophet would receive the revelation he would sweat um, there are another hadith that um, or another riwayah that says that the prophet would be riding his camel and then if the revelation comes to him his camel would stop and sit would go on its knees and then sit down and so from a literalist perspective this is evidence of the of the heaviness of the thickle of the Quran you know that's very literal but qawla and thaqila as so many have noted is that this is a revelation that will take reflection deliberation a great deal of seriousness um, this is a revelation that will require the investment of time that that revelation so all the 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 later sufis that say that the quran doesn't reveal its secrets unless you invest the time in worship a lot the genesis of their argument was with surah al-muzdabbi that layl and spend the time the, the night in worship um and recite the Quran reflectively and deliberately and then Allah noting that this is a weighty matter so that it cannot be comprehended or cannot be done justice cannot be done to it without both these factors the investment of time in worship and deliberation and reflection Okay. This is six. Yeah, the, here it says, um, Verily the rising by night is very hard and most potent and good for governing oneself and suit and most suitable for understanding the word of Allah. Nashi'at um, al-Layl is not really the rising of the night. Um, if I would translate it, I would say the heart of the night. It, the Layl doesn't have a single Nashi'ah. Every moment in a night or a day is an Asha, meaning every moment is a rising of something. But idiomatically, when you say Nashi'at al-Layl, idiomatically it literally means the heart of the night, the, 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 the midst of the night. And what is the midst of the night appropriate for? These, this, this, these few words, 
has remarkably eloquent, remarkably beautiful, and remarkably nuanced in meaning. Ashaddu Watan means, could mean that, or layers of meaning, if you will, that it, Allah opens the gates of understanding only in the heart of the night. The soul is most impacted in the heart of the night. The mind is most cleared or um, clear and, and, and able to, to think clearly in the heart of the night. It could even mean that there's something about the night in the world of the ghayb, in the world of the unseen, that we don't know. Like something that has to do with angels and their actions and their activity. Literally, ashabdu wat'an means the heart of the night of, is of the greatest impact. Referring to what? Probably to all of these. Something that the Prophet ﷺ intuitively knew because we know that the Prophet would do his iqama at night and that the early followers to Islam, it would be specifically the night that they would spend long hours in worship. They intuitively knew that that's the time that they can long for God and speak to God and achieve the greatest effect. And this comes and affirms that. And in fact, among the, the of course, the, the Sufis that comes, come later, for the Sufis, someone who does not know the meaning of being deprived of sleep for the sake of Allah cannot reach Allah. They've said it unequivocally. If you think you can reach Allah by getting your full sleep every night, think again. That's that's the Sufis. Um, obviously the Salafis, uh, modern day Salafis especially, they say as long as you do your five prayers and maybe the Sunnah doesn't matter because they, they you know, it's not more complicated than that. Um, but not just the Sufis. I mean, you could refer, you could read, for instance, what Arazi says about uh, his experience with the night. And Arazi usually doesn't speak in a personal tone. But when it came to Surah Al-Muzammal, he talks about his experience with the night. وَأَقْوَى <laughs> مُقِيلَ Here it's translated as most suitable for understanding the word of Allah. The aqwa muqila is more um, nuanced than this. Does anyone else have any other translation? What does the study Quran say? This is six, I think. Six is upright, most upright for speech. That's more literal, upright for speech. Um, uh, 
This one says, more keen and speech more certain. They're all correct. But wa'akwa muqila could have another meaning, which I think is the meaning that it actually is probably the most correct. And that is your ability to hear Allah's speech is most heightened in the night. Here, aqwa muqila, who is the qil? Who is speaking here? Who's doing the speaking? View number one is that, well, if you recite the Quran, you, 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 it refers to the Prophet and, Muslim, and his followers reciting the Quran. They're the ones who are speaking. And so it's telling them that you can recite more correctly at night. But that doesn't make a lot of sense. Maybe someone, when they sleep, have a full night's sleep, they can recite better in the morning. But what if the speech is actually doesn't refer to the Prophet or the companions, but refers to Allah's speech? And that you can hear Allah more clearly and transparently in the night, which is definitely my experience. Um, there's something about when Allah sees that you're losing sleep in the same way that when Allah sees that you're giving money, sacrificing money, Allah responds to sacrifice. Allah doesn't respond to those who are comfortable and entitled and call upon Allah. But when Allah sees that you're sacrificing money, Allah responds. When Allah sees that you're sacrificing family time, Allah responds. When Allah sees that you're sacrificing comfort, Allah responds. Okay, إِلَّا لَكَ فِي النَّهَارِ صَبْحًا طَوِيلًا This is Allah telling the, the Prophet and through the Prophet as we said in Surah Al-Muddathir the followers, the Muslims in general that in the day, you are preoccupied with, with the affairs of your life. You spend your day preoccupied with the things that preoccupy you. وَذْكُرْ إِسْمَ رَبِّكَ وَتَبَتَّلْ إِلَيْهِ تَبْتِيلًا Remember the name of your Lord. Now, remember here, again, we're alerted to the central importance of dhikr which we've seen time and time again. That it is not a matter of doing the formulaic salah only, but the actual dhikr within the salah and outside the salah. وَتَبَتَّلْ إِلَيْهِ تَبْتِيلًا is when you sever something from something. So Maryam, because رضي الله عنها عليه الصلاة والسلام عليه السلام Maryam, mother of Jesus, was known as Maryam al-Batul, 
Why Maryam al-Batul? Because she spent a great amount, a great deal of time in seclusion praying. The at-tabattul here is that she would cut herself from society and dedicate herself to worship. So that's why she earned the designation of Maryam al-Batul. So, وَتَبَتَّلْ إِلَيْهِ تَبْتِيلًا It doesn't necessarily say, mean isolate your, yourself individually, but break off spiritually from your attachment and direct your attachment to Allah. So when you say tabattal ilay, it's like telling you become God-centered. If you tell me, you know, I pray and Allah doesn't answer my prayer, and if I comment and I say, hal tabattalta ilay, meaning, have you really abandoned all your other attachments and turn your gaze and your attention and your center towards Allah, that's a tabattul ila Allah. So then the next ayah is a confirmation to this because when it says Rabbul Mashriqi wal Maghrib, this is um, how does the, this is uh, Surah 9, how does the study Quran translate it? Lord of the East and the West. Yeah, that, that's how the vast majority translate it, Lord of the East and the West. I would translate it idiomatically, because, yes, literally it means Lord of the East and the West, but idiomatically it means Lord of everything. That expression if a king called himself the Lord of the East and the West, or Rabbul Mashakul Malikul Mashakul Maghrib, meant I am the king of the world. Um, so, Fattakhizhu Wakila. So, here the command form is put your reliance in Allah, which affirms the message of Tabattal Ilayhi Tabtila. So, at this point, this opening salvo in Surah Al-Muzzammil Pause, because we often, you know, pass over things like this. Pause and think. If you are a, a a marketer of sorts this is not the way you would want to market your religion because if you're thinking of joining this faith at this very early juncture what is that you're going to join you're going to join something that requires you to lose a great deal of sleep, stay up in long hours of worship, 
turn your value system from relying on whatever network you relied on to relying on Allah, it's hard work. It's not. Um, it's not uh, flashy. It's not popular. It's not fun. Um, now, why do I mention this? Because, of course, Islamophobes who have, uh, you know, the 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 uh, among the 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 garbage they spew out is oh, uh, all the all Islam brought to people in the Mecca period was to tell them about the enjoyments in Jannah, the, 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 the decadent fun they're going to have in Jannah, and terrify them of all the things that's going to happen to, in Hellfire. And they'll often say, which is, I mean, it's so absurd that it's even repeating it as weird, uh, that, well, there were only very few converts during the Mecca period because all Muhammad brought to his followers was just basically the enticements of heaven and uh, the threat of hell. If there were only very few converts in the Mecca period, which is not true, but if there were, it's because it was hard work. Because if you converted to this religion, you are not just going to become persecuted, but you are going to spend enormous amount of hours in worship, which in fact exactly what the Muslims did in, during the Mecca period, and even the Muslims who migrated to Abyssinia maintained that practice of long hours in worship. The other thing, and and, oh, and the reason I mention this is not because I am responding to Islamophobes, but because I'm responding to Muslims who have written me and said, oh, I'm having a crisis of faith. I've, you know, these, I've heard this argument that the only reason in, that in Mecca, all, you know, all the Prophet did was just promise people decadent enjoyments in heaven. Again, I don't blame them. I blame the teachers. I blame the lack of education because we, we really don't know much about the seerah of the Prophet and we don't know much about who the early Muslims were and we don't know anything about their, their practices and their behaviors and what it meant to be a convert in Mecca and the incentive system and all of that. So that's worth noting. Um, the other thing, of course, worth noting is that it's very odd indeed if Muhammad was not a prophet to issue a command to himself to spend so much of his nights in prayer. Um, something to reflect on. I mean, once Surat al-Muzzammil came, you're no longer going to be able to just go to bed early and say, I don't feel like doing dhikr tonight, like I do, for instance. Well, 
you know, oh, I'm not feeling well, I don't want to do zikr. Um, Surat al-Muzammil came with the Prophet and his companions, and that was it. This, in the dynamics of those who joined the Prophet early on, was quite material, and especially among the elite of Mecca who believed that the Prophet was say, speaking the truth. Because if you see someone telling you, I'm receiving the revelation, and you look at them, and they already have a reputation of being extremely truthful, has no, um, has no ambition in material things that you possess. And you notice that they spend so much of their time in worship. And if you are a person who is in living conscience, that appeals to you. So if we were telling, retelling the story of the Sira, my point is that we could tell it in a far more effective way and a far more nuanced way than, than we've allowed colonialism to, to or apologetics to tell the story because open up any book in Sira, you will find that they skip the only thing they'll mention about this very early period in the life of the Prophet is the story about Khadija and the cave and seeing uh, Gabriel and being terrified and Khadija telling him no, you know, that's it. And then they move on. Um, okay. وَاصْبِرْ عَلَى مَا يَقُولُونَ وَهْجُرْهُمْ هَجْرًا جَمِيلًا Persevere in the face of what they say and separate yourself. But separate yourself, not وَهْجُرْهُمْ, but هَجْرًا جَمِيلًا Separate yourself in a beautiful way. Again, what is missing from the way we study the seerah is the way that the early Muslims reacted to the first time that the Qur'an tells them, not the last time, but the first time that the Qur'an tells them, your response to the criticism, your response to people disbelieving you, your response to the mockery that you will be subjected to has to be beautiful. It wasn't the last time that they're told this, but the first time. And it didn't make immediate sense to everyone, especially those who were either indentured servants or slaves and had a lot of gripes against the social order in Mecca. So we're already persecuted and targeted and by joining you we're going to be, and this is, was one of the things that became at issue very early on, so if we convert and join you you're telling us that once we start getting persecuted, the only thing 
that is available to us is that we respond beautifully. Again, we pass over this too easily. Because the Prophet's response was yes. And a lot of people didn't like this. Said, okay, so let's get this straight. We have to spend all this time in worship. We have to give up money, take care of the poor, and so spend money. And we have to reflect upon the Quran. And we have to learn to put our trust in Allah. And on top of all of this, we have to respond to those who treat us badly in a beautiful way. It wasn't a very great incentive system for a lot of people to convert. Something that we pass we, we pass over very quickly without proper reflection. Okay. Now, the other thing I want to note here is that you read, especially among, uh, like if, uh, if you came up in Wahhabi schools, they will tell you this ayah was abrogated later on in Medina by Ayat al-Sayf, the command to fight. So no longer did you have to be beautiful and uh, uh, that's absolute nonsense. And it, for, you know, that's something we'll deal with inshallah later. But if you want a, a preview, in other words, if you want to skip ahead, read what Razi says about the issue of the abrogation of this verse with Ayat al-Sayf. Razi is not exactly, uh, you know, Razi, half of his tafsir is attacking the Mu'tazila, so he's not exactly a rationalist, and he's not exactly a Sufi either. But even someone like Razi acknowledges that that's absurd. The idea that Ayat al-Sayf, or the verse, uh, the sword, so-called sword verse, abrogates this, this is without foundation. But I mean, uh, in, in all the time that I've read Wahhabi literature and sat in Wahhabi classes and so on, that's all I heard all the time is that this is, was abrogated. Okay. Now here, this is 11, it says, In telling the Prophet and the companions that this should be a response, Allah is reorienting their attention to say, you know, those privileged people, Ulil Ni'ma are the privileged. Those privileged people who persecute you, leave them up to me. This doesn't mean that Allah is saying, I will give you a surety or a warranty that I'm going to destroy them and punish them on, in this earth. What it means is that Allah is saying, as we've seen in other surahs already, 
No, Allah is saying it's, it's my business how I take care of them. You busy yourself with your relationship with me. But those people who are privileged, and it's always the privileged, who have the most to lose and who fight and resist the most. Again, the role of the ego. Um, your, your internal shaitan. Your ego is your living shaitan that justifies all types of privileges and comforts and entitlements. The only thing, and, and, and uh, um, the, the translation Uh, and give them respite for a little while. The, you know, some have said, well, this was a Quran predicting that the respite is until they are defeated in the Battle of Badr. But that's, there's no evidence for that. The, the, the respite is the, the respite of life itself, that the, the things will be accounts will be settled in the hereafter. And and, and the, if you study the Quran, Allah's reference to life in this earth is always that it's very passing and it's very short. Okay. Yes. إِنَّ لَدَيْنَا أَنْكَالًا وَجَحِيمًا وَطْعَامًا ذَا غُصَّةٍ وَعَذَابًا أَلِيمًا So here, the shift to hellfire or the, the shift to punishment. 12 and 13. This transfer says, Verily with us are fetters to bind them and a raging fire and a foot that chokes and a painful torment. Okay. What time is it? Uh, the reason I pause at this point is because I think a lot of Muslims would be surprised at the way that إِنَّ لَدَيْنَا أَنْكَالًا وَجَحِيمًا وَطْعَامًا ذَا غُصَّةٍ وَعَذَابًا أَلِيمًا is understood even in some of the mainstream tafsirs, mainstream in, by our days, um, like like Razi would be a good example. Leave alone tafsirs like Qashani's or uh, Ismail Haqqi's or Ibn Arabi or, and so on. The main thing and maybe the best way I can do this is write it down.
you know, uh, I just remembered this. Um, the Ab'at Waratul Qur'ana Tartila. One of the, the hadiths that I was trying to I was trying to find it, but as you know, my, my books are all in boxes, so I'm, my notes are referenced to book that I can't find right now. But there is a hadith that says, There are some people who recite the Quran and the Quran curses them. And these are the people who recite the Quran but implement nothing of it. There are people that know how to recite the Quran even beautifully, correctly, you know, all the pronunciations, all the rules, uh, or musically. I mean, musically, but beautifully not in a real sense, because I, I believe it's not, if it's not in the heart, it's not beautiful. But anyway, um, but the Prophet says that or if you rush through the Qur'an, there are many situations where um, the hadith is self-explanatory. Often, there are people that recite the Qur'an and the Qur'an curses them. Qur'an al um, The other thing I, I remembered um, is um, one of the early reports you run into um, is that and that I, it just struck me is the Prophet ﷺ once was Abu Dharr al-Ghafari uh, who at the time was uh, had committed himself, had dedicated himself to being the prophet's helper, and um, would not would not leave the prophet at all. Uh, and this was later on, but that they did a whole qiyam al-layl, an entire qiyam al-layl, meaning they stayed up all night reciting one verse. Um, which verse was it? إن تعذبهم إن تعذبهم فهم فإنهم عبادك وإن تغفر لهم فإنك أنت العزيز فإنك أنت العزيز الحكيم. That was the verse. إن تعذبهم فإنهم عبادك وإن تغفر لهم فإنك أنت العزيز الحكيم. If you forgive them, then that's up to you. And if you forgive them, if you punish them, that's up to you. And if you forgive them. It's up to you. And they spent the entire night just reciting this one verse over and over and over. Because I often have people ask me, well, how do you do dhikr? And they think that dhikr must be that you have a long thing that you... No, dhikr could be a single ayah. Um, the more you recite, the more your heart opens. And most importantly of all, 
your ego is disciplined. The, the ego that keeps making you restless and making you impatient and tells you to get up, to, to go get a, seek a distraction, to go do, you know, you're bored, you're tired, you're fed up, you're, that wants you to drift and think about this or think about that. And that's what you're disciplining when you do these economies. Anyway, um, where was I? How did I get into this? Oh, oh yes, yes. Did I know it down there? So, it says, I'm, I'm going to just uh, uh, read it in Arabic first quickly and then um, come والمراد هنا سائر أنواع العذاب وعلم أنه يمكن حمل هذه الأمراض بالأربعة على العقوبة الروحانية أما الأنكال فهي عبارة عن بقاء النفس في قيد التعلقات الجسمانية واللذات البدنية فإنها في الدنيا لما اكتسبت ملكة تلك المحبة والرغبة فبعد البدن يشتد الحنين مع أن آلات الكسب قد بطلت فصارت تلك الأنكال والقيود المانعة لها من التخلص إلى عالم الروح والصفاء ثم يتولد من تلك القيود الروحانية نيران روحانية فإن شدة ميلها إلى أحوال البدنية وعدم تمكنها من الوصول إليها يوجب حرقة شديدة روحانية كمن تشتد رغبته في وجدان شيء ثم إنه لا يجده فإنه يحترق قلبه عليه فذاك هو الجحيم إنه ثم إنه يتجرع غصة الحرمان وألم الفراق فذاك هو المراد من قوله وطعاما ذا غصة ثم إنه بسبب هذه الأحوال بقى محروما عن تجلي نور الله والانخراط في سلك المقدسين وذلك وذلك هو المراد من قوله وعذابا أليما. This is تفسير الرازي. Now what he's saying and what's notable is that he's saying that when for الرازي the reference to and can and can means a a, a fetter or a, or a, or a shackle but Rodi says that these shackles do not necessarily mean physical shackles they they're not made out of metal or steel but rather that the jahim the hell that and here the jahim could literally if you want a literal translation would be Hell, but not hellfire. That the jahim that the that is referenced here, well, ghusa that is referenced here, is a spiritual state. What is the what causes the spiritual state? The spirit, what what the, the agony that the spiritual state will be in, is that. Those who in life on this earth have lived their entire life entirely dependent on physical longings and physical passions. So they, they want to consume, they want to drink, they want to be comfortable, they want and so on and so forth. In the hereafter, they will find that the very fact that their physical bodies are not their physical bodies will be a source of denial. And because of the poor state of their spirituality, 
their longings will become a source of torture for them. They will want to eat but not have the means to do so. They will not want to drink but not have the means to do so. There what will be the shackles upon them are their own passions and their own weaknesses. Um, in this context, the Razi is, is, is not by any figment of the imagination among the, the Sufi orientation. But Razi is, is basically saying that it's not, um, this doesn't necessarily refer to physical things, but it refers to levels of spiritual, um, ethereal suffering that is a result of having lived the life you've lived. For a lot of the Sufis, when they, ref when they comment on Surah Al-Muzzammil, and, and that was the genesis of this discourse, because it grew from Surah Al-Muzzammil to a great levels of elaboration. They talk about, they, for a lot of them, the, the azab is azab ruhani. The torture or punishment is exclusively spiritual and not physical. And that all the references to physical punishments in the Quran are metaphorical. And in this context, they will often talk about al-azab al-ruhani thalasat asnaf. There are three types of, or three levels of spiritual suffering in the hereafter. what they call furqat al-mushtahiyat al-mushtahiyat wa khizya al-fadihat wa hasrat al-mahbubat we can have an entire halaqa just on these three, three categories but I'm just going to translate them quickly for the interest of time and then come back to them later on uh, that there will be the, the suffering in the soul for having learned to sense or having relied on a sense of well-being solely on physical things. This is in Mushtahayat, that I feel good if I sleep on a comfortable bread. I feel good if I eat. I feel good if I drink. If I don't, I don't feel good. Well, when the rules of the game change, but Allah doesn't take these longings, that's one level of suffering. وَخِزِي الْفَاضِحَاتِ That's when you are confronted with the painful truth of your own failures. وَحَصْرَةِ الْمَحْبُوبَاتِ And that's the despair from discovering that the only love 
that you would long for at that point will be the love of that who you cannot attain. That in the hereafter, the love of a mother or a father or a child or a brother won't matter, or a husband won't matter. Uh, n not in hellfire. And the only love, it will become clear to you that the only love that you desperately want is Allah's love and the approval of the angels and the approvals of the prophets and so on. But you won't have that. And so they often talk about punishment in the hereafter at these three levels. Um, the Hurqa, the Khizdi, and the Hasra. And if you read in Sufi literature and they refer to the Hurqa, Khiz, and Hasra, that, that's what they're talking about. They, they, these are terms of art. They're not... But it's very interesting that as far as I could tell that the discourse, the genesis of that discourse arose from Surat Al-Muzammil. And specifically these two verses. Um, in the interest of time, I'm not. There's a lot that I I could have read to you that's very beautiful, um, but we'll leave it for another. Because we'll come back to it. يوم ترجف الأرض والجبال وكانت الجبال كثيبا مهيلة. A reference, of course, to the hereafter. Um, so. The day that the mountains and the the earth and the mountains will shake, and the mountains Kathiban Mahila will basically become will evaporate like dust, or like Kathiban um, Mahila is literally like something that evaporates into into nothingness. Uh, the, the interesting thing that I've that I've read in reference to these two verses, and I don't even remember where, is that um, it might have been Ibn Arabi, but I'm not sure, who said that uh, it it was the first time that the Quran alerts the believers that the nature of reality in the hereafter will change dramatically and drastically. And in doing so, it also alerted them that the nature of reality on this earth is artificial and unreal. إِنَّا أَرْسَلْنَا إِلَيْكُمْ رَسُولًا شَاهِدًا عَلَيْكُمْ وَكَمَا أَرْسَلْنَا إِلَى فِرْعَوْنَ رَسُولًا فعصى فرعون الرسول فأخذناه أخذا وبيلا فكيف تتقون إن كفرتم يوما يجعل الولدان شيبا So then the shift the third shift now in the Quran to a reference a quick reference to history um, specifically فرعون the Pharaoh and again it's a lot of commentators know the, fear, the the reason that the Quran mentions in Surah Al-Muzammil specifically the story of the Pharaoh and 
not because the fate, in hindsight, we know that the fate of the Meccans were not the fate of the people of Egypt, uh, was Moses, but that because the, in, in hindsight, we realize that the prophecy of Muhammad is most similar to the prophecy of Moses in the sense that both of them established not just in a, 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 a there's a message phase but also a state phase both Muhammad and Moses were statesmen were warriors and statesmen uh, so basically that this was sort of that that is the most interesting that thing noted as to why the Pharaoh in particular in this Meccan period in which there are no Jews uh, in Mecca this is not Medina and why connect at this very early stage the prophecy of Muhammad to Moses and most commentators say it's because of the similarity between the the, the roles that these two prophets play um, and that it was sort of a hint to the prophet that that's what's going to be happening to you okay the 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 terror of that day will literally make people's hay, hair become gray. It's interesting because so much is written in the Islamic tradition about how this is a, a metaphoric reference to fear and not a literal description of, of what will happen. But it's interesting because I've actually known someone who um, was tortured and his hair, hair literally turned gray from the fear and agony. Um, his hair was entirely black. He, he died under torture and, when, and you could look at his hair and had, is there a physiological reason for that? So, I don't know. This is 18. The, the, the thing to, um, that the, the, the sky, the sky will either, you could be understood as a sky will crumble or the sky will literally be torn asunder. It will be torn asunder or will crumble with it. Now the it refers to what precisely is um, is it the, the, the final day? Is it as you read in some of the literal tafsirs uh, the weight of the mizan and, and things like that? Um, it, that it, it really is not that material. But what is it's interesting uh, and on this verse uh, 18 is that um, 
the idea of the sky being something that could crumble or be destroyed um, struck the Meccan Arabs as very weird. Later on in the Quran, this becomes a consistent theme. But they thought the sky is just like the air here. It's just the air here is like the sky. So what do you mean the sky is going to crumble? Are you do you mean it's going to rain? Well, that's not what it says. Are you mean it's going to be stormy? No, the sky is going to crumble. It struck them as very odd. And it's interesting because um, I don't know. I mean, it, it, it's um, it for I guess for the modern mind, it's not that odd. The idea of the sky being as fragile as it is, but for their age, it was truly weird. Um, okay. إِنَّ هَذِهِ تَذْكِرَةِ فَمَنْ شَاءَ اتَّخَذَ إِلَى رَبِّهِ سَبِيلًا The beginning of insistence on individuality, which will become the earmark of the Islamic message. This, this is a remembrance. So whomever wants can take the path to God. Again, it's so easy for us to overlook the historical moment. What do you mean anyone who wants can just go to God? You mean no priests? No inter intercessions? No intercedors? No, ch no churches? None of the things that are required to access the deities? But the other thing that to, to note also some of the most beautiful things you can read about Dhikr. Um, I, I tried to remember the last time I, I, was, I wrote the note, this was a week ago. Um, uh, about Dhikr. Um, yeah, so in this context, uh, you will find the the, the Prophet in commenting on this verse uh, in Surah Al-Muzammil is the famous hadith that who knows himself, knows his God. The, 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 some of the, the first time we have, or some sources say that that's the first time that that hadith is mentioned. Other sources say it was mentioned later, but, um, but in so many of the tafsir, like for instance, um, um, Ibn Arabi or Qashani, whoever wrote that tafsir, uh, he says, 
هو انت اذكر ربك الذي هو انت اي اعرف نفسك واذكرها ولا تنساها فينساك فينساك ربك so what he's saying is that when when it says فاذكر ربك in in reality god is within you so if you want to know your god know yourself and if you don't know yourself then you are effectively forgetting yourself and if you forget yourself you are forgetting your god and if you forget your god god will forget you this took volumes of commentary because for the medieval mind later on of course we find this move to protestantism and, and i believe he took it from from islamic sources but the idea that the path to god is not accessible unless you know yourself you are at peace with yourself because you scrutinize the self that as long as you are deluded about yourself you will also be deluded about god was revolutionary and remains revolutionary and the evidence that is so revolutionary is that the the Salafis of Arabia when they were going around slaughtering the Sufis in the Hijaz one of the things that they absolutely detested was the idea that in order to know God you need to know the self because to them how could it doesn't that mean that God is subjective of course they completely if you that's what you understand from it then you understood nothing. It doesn't mean that God is, is subjective and has no reality as they thought it did. But without self-knowledge, there is no knowledge of God. Um, the other thing that um, in this context And see, yeah, there's um, there, there, you find you read a lot in, in the context just with this, with verse 19, um, that. Um, that it, the reason th that the relationship between a human being and God in many ways is in proportion to uh, the human being's own internal what they used to call Quds and Dennis. All 
all of us have a Quds and have Edenas. The Quds is the part of it, a part of us that is truly divine. The Danas is the corruption of that divinity. So it's like the Danas is the corruption, the Quds is the, is the, uh, the, the, is holy within. And that you, Alam Quds is the, the world of the holy is the world of God. That Alam Quds is not accessible unless in Ghalaba al Fard, in Ghalaba Quds al Danas, or in Ghalaba fil Fard Quds al Danas. So that unless you are able to decrease the amount of impurities within and polish the amount of divinity within, you are a mismatch to the world of divinity. So, so for instance, that if you want the divine to manifest before your eyes, to manifest within you, then that cannot be unless you clean the impurities within so that divinity can, in fact, manifest within. That as if you're bringing something impure towards purity, pure, and then you're complaining that the divine is not manifesting. Well, it's like saying, I will come, but clean up and purify the space first. But that space is you, inside of you. So I will come visit you, but as long as you clean up your home. But you don't clean up your home. And then you say, well, where's God? <clears throat> In many ways, the testament of spiritualists, whether Sufis or semi-Sufis or just spiritualists or not Sufis, um, is exactly that. It's that they've cleaned up their space so it will be appropriate for receiving the divine, or for the divine manifesting. So you find a lot of writings of that nature on, just in Surah Al-Muzammil, which again is, is something worth flagging. The other thing, um, and I'll, then I'll move on, um, is when, when Surah Al-Muzabbin says وَتَبَتَّلْ إِلَيْهِ تَبْتِيلًا in relation that this is a zikr um, your impurities are the hijab are the veil all human beings are born with the veil minimally there, nothing but a very transparent thin veneer. But as they commit sins, but not just sins meaning legal sin, sins, but envy, covetousness, um, you know, all, all the weaknesses of the soul, 
that that veil becomes thicker and thicker. And as the veil becomes thicker, Nurullah al-Munbasit lil-Khalq, that the light of God becomes harder to see. But what you often, the, the, uh, the writings often that comment at great lengths in this context about how uh, that as much as you cleanse of your impunity, impurities, that hijab thins out. And it is not that Allah manifests, but you see Allah as Allah is already manifesting in every space. So in other words, you're just seeing what you were blinded from seeing. So there's a lot, a lot more that's, you know, that I'm skipping the quotes and I'm just summarizing them or paraphrasing them in the interest of time. Um, but it's uh, it's always fascinated me that the that all of these insights are from the very earliest revelation in the Quran, even before we have the legal prayers revealed, even before the revelation of the Fatha and so on. Inna Rabbaka ya'lamu. أَنَّكَ تَقُومُ أَنَّ مِنْ ثُلْثِيَ اللَّيْلِ وَنِصْفَهُ وَثُلْثَهُ وَطَائِفَةٌ مِنَ الَّذِينَ مَعَكُ وَاللَّهُ يُقَدِّرُ اللَّيْلَ وَالنَّهَارِ وَعَلِمَ أَنْ لَنْ تَحْصُوهُ فَتَابَ عَلَيْكُمْ فَاقْرَأُوا مَا تَيَسَّرَ مِنَ الْقُرْآنِ عَلِمَ أَنْ سَيَكُونُ مِنْكُمْ مَرْضَى وَآخَرُونَ يَضْرِبُونَ فِي الْأَرْضِ يَبْتَغُونَ مِنْ فَضْلِ اللَّهِ وَآخَرُونَ يُقَاتِلُونَ فِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ فَاقْرَأُوا مَا تَيَسَّرَ مِنْهُ مَا تَيَسَّرَ مِنْهُ أوكي so this is the ayah that I said, some said was revealed. I didn't finish the ayah, I, I stopped in the middle of the ayah. But this is the ayah that some said was revealed at the, a year later, some said were revealed in Medina. And I said that, no, it was revealed at the time that Surah Muzammil was revealed. And the story here is that now Allah is telling the Prophet, I, God's self, know that you and some of your followers, ta'ifa min alladhina ma'ak, could mean, by the way, uh, some of your followers or most of your followers. Ta'ifa is, in, is not, not specific. Uh, that you, in fact, spend two-thirds of the night in worship. And, or one-third of the night in worship. But Allah knows, لَمْ عَلَيْكُمْ That you are not able to... Um, I'll cheat the translation first. Maybe it will inspire me to um, do you hear something? Um, 
So it says um, that you are unable to pray the whole night. Yeah, that you will not be able to um, persevere through the whole night. And Allah, so Allah has that Allah doesn't expect that of you. Here, tawbah doesn't mean Allah has forgiven you, but Allah doesn't expect that from you. So, recite what you can from the Quran and فَقْرَأُوا مَا تَيَصَّرَ مِنَ الْقُرْآنِ Note, it's, it's repeated twice. So, recite what you can from the Quran. Allah knows that some of you will be ill. Allah knows that some of you will be busy working. And Allah knows that some of you be, will be fighting in Allah's cause. So recite what you can from the Quran. Now, why this deserves a pause? Well, some said, well, how could the Quran at this point talk about fighting in Allah's cause because fighting only came in the Medina period? Uh, as many commentators have noted, I mean, and so they thought that this must be mean, that must mean that this ayah was revealed in the Medina period. But I, I don't think that that's necessarily the case at all. In fact, if you study a lot of the Quran in the Mecca period, it predicts events that, are, that take place only in Medina. So the fact that it's talking about something that will only transpire 10 years later is hardly surprising for the Quran. The other thing is, يُقَاتِلُوا فِي سَبِيلِ It doesn't necessarily mean that they are waging warfare, but they are fighting in God's cause. And fighting in God's cause could be they're getting beaten. If they pray where the Kaaba is and people attack them and beat it and beat them, that's fighting in God's cause. So some said, and here's the a lot of commentators thought that the beginning of the ayah is when Allah says Fataba alaikum that Allah now has relieved Allah's expectations. So at the, the, they argued that at the beginning of Surah Al-Muzammil, Allah is saying, I expect you to stay up two-thirds of the night, except two-thirds of the night or half of the night, and by the end of the Surah, Allah is saying, well, no, no, one-third of the night is enough, half or one-third is enough. And so they argue that the end of the surah modified the demands of the beginning of the surah and that that's why Allah is saying, Allah now, that Allah now, you know, has lessened. I think, um, as Razi, for instance, argues, that that's, um, um, that's a stretch 
and it is it is unnecessary and it's contorted logic. The Arabic is rather clear that it starts out by saying to the Prophet, you, as the Prophet, the worship that Allah wants you to do is what is spelled out at the beginning of the surah. That towards the end of the surah, it is not just talking about the Prophet alone, but about the Prophet and those with the Prophet. We know that very few people joined the Prophet in his most demanding schedule, staying up two-thirds of the night Ali and even Khadija, we don't have reports that she would stay up two-thirds of the night or, or half of the night or two-thirds of the night on a consistent basis. The one that, that features most prominently in this is an Imam Ali. Um, but the less rigorous schedule, we have reports that the Prophet ﷺ, when he would see that there were a large number of people coming to join them, that he would limit his iqama to one half or one third of the night. And that Allah basically is saying that's acceptable. That when, that, that in fact that you've done what is less in order to accommodate these people, but it's still quite demanding. I mean, you still talk about one half of the night or one third of the night. But it is notable that when it comes to what Allah expects from the Prophet, the Prophet alone, and maybe Imam Ali, is something much more demanding than that. It's two thirds of the night, at a, or one half at a minimum, instead of one third at a minimum. And in this way, we don't need to, to see it as a, a watch, you know, saying, oh, now I understand this is too hard for you, so I'm going to lessen the demand, which I think is absurd. Okay. Okay. So, some said, how could it be that they are told to do salah when salah was not finalized till Israq? We know that at that point, the Salah of the Prophet consisted of standing up and doing sujood. But it didn't include the Fatha, it didn't include the short surah, it didn't include exactly what we say in Rukuah, it didn't include a Salah Ibrahimiyyah, so it was the nucleus of the Salah that became finalized. But the command early on is Salah. The other thing I'll, I'll comment on is the notion of Aqridullah Qardan Hasana. 
early on from now this from the very beginning of the Quran the Quran insists your relationship to Allah is meaningless unless you are going to invest time and you are unless you are going to invest wealth and the way that the Quran approached this with the believers at that time at the very the, the very idea of what it will demand of them in terms of giving from their wealth is that understand that whatever you pay forward on this earth it's as if and th this uh, captured the imagination of of the people of the time uh, it is you are guaranteed it's as if Allah is saying you are loaning me money personally we because especially those that grow up Muslims they read this in the Quran and it doesn't they don't pause at it but there is no question for the that at the time of revelation the idea that I am figuratively loaning God money excited these early converts to Islam the idea that Allah would deal with them instead of God being so inaccessible requiring sacrifices and requiring the intercession of very expensive interceders whether it's a church or priests or so on that it is as simple as if you give money to a needy person then you are building a credit with Allah in, in that personal fashion um, I wish that that sense of, of excitement and sense of zeal would return to us because we've, we, we've completely, completely evaporated with modern Muslims um, And then, of course, the, then the closing that whatever you give, your, your reward with Allah is much greater. And in all cases, seek forgiveness with Allah because Allah is most forgiving. Before we, we start, we say we're done, let me just quickly see if I forgot everything, anything that... Aisha had um, an interesting um, opinion about Iqamat al-Layl, which was interesting. She believed that Iqamat al-Layl must be preceded with Inap. That it is not Qiyam al-Layl unless you, like you pray Aisha, you nap even for a short time and then you wake up and then do Qiyam al-Layl. Um, 
as far as I know, no, no one else said that opinion, but it's interesting. Um, <coughs> just give me one second, I want to check. Uh, I made a note to myself to tell you about but I don't remember what I was referring to, so let me check. Yeah, uh, okay, uh, this is, um, okay, I, I now remember. Uh, when the when Allah is telling the, the, the Prophet that we will, we will reveal to you a weighty matter, that in this context, so many of the tafsir talk about that the Qur'an does not have a single meaning but layers of meaning. So when you've heard me in, 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 in so many tafsir talking about layers of meaning, a lot of it was inspired by this, the discourse taking place in this context. That the Qur'an always has layers of meaning and that the layers of meaning are made accessible to different times and places, different levels of piety, and different levels of intelligence. And there is a quote here, this is, I think, from Tafsir al-Razi, it says, uh, and I'll just read it quickly and then comment on it, and then we'll stop. إِنَّهُ ثَقِيلٌ بِمَعْنَى أَنَّ الْعَقْلُ الْوَاحِدُ لَا يَفِي بِإِدْرَاقِ فَوَائِدُ وَمَعْنِيهِ بِالْكُلِّيَّةِ فَالْمُتَكَلِّمُونَ غَاصُوا فِي بِحَارِ مَعْقُولَاتِهِ وَالْفُقَهَاءَ أَقْبَلُوا عَلَى الْبَحْثِ عَنْ أَحْكَامِهِ وَكَذَا أَهْلِ اللُّغَةِ وَالنَّحْوِ أَرْبَابِ الْمَعَانِيِ ثُمَّ لَا يَذَالُ كُلُّ مُتَأَخِّرٍ يَفُوزُ مِنْهُ بِمِنْهُ بِفَوَائِدِ مَا وَصَلَ إلَيْهِ الْمُتَقَدِّمُونَ فَعَلِمْنَا أَنَّ الْإِنْسَانَ الْوَاحِدَ لَا يَقْوَى عَلَى الْإِسْتِقْلَالِ بِحَمْلِهِ فَصَارَكَ الْحَمْلُ الثَّقِيلُ الَّذِي يَعْجَزُ الْخَلْقَ عَنْ حَمْلِهِ reference to the, the weightiness of the Qur'an that it is impossible for a single person, regardless of how intelligent or how pious, to understand the full meaning of the Qur'an. And it is impossible for a single generation to understand the full meaning of the Qur'an, but rather that the meanings of the Qur'an are cumulatively built, each drawing upon the other. The, interestingly, that becomes in our age more important than even in their age because of the way that we often deal with the Qur'an as if it is a law book and as if, um, you know, any average person shooting from the hip can tell you what the meaning of the Qur'an is rather than study the Qur'an, you know, with the absurdity of people saying, well, why do you need to dedicate a lifetime to studying the Qur'an, for instance? Or why do you need to fully dedicate your, yourself full-time to studying the Qur'an? Um, so I, I just, uh, it, it, when, I, when I remember that, it struck me as rather curious how things have become. Okay, alhamdulillah, we're done with Surah al -Muzammil.